Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And my name's Zach. We're so glad to have you with us today. We are coming to the end now of our series on the Bible. This would be the fifth uh, podcast where we discuss the Bible, although I'm sure it will not be the last time we talk about it. But specifically, we've talked about the attributes of Scripture. We've talked about the canon of Scripture. We've talked about textual criticism and translation, how we're sure that the copies we have are the right ones. And last time we talked about the methods of studying Scripture. We talked about observation, interpretation, application. And so today, as we come to the end, we're going to be discussing the use of Scripture. And that sounds bad, maybe, that we're using Scripture, but we're supposed to use Scripture. We're supposed to use it for the different areas of our life and the different ministries we have. So, Zach, explain to us today, what do we mean by the use of Scripture? Well, you know, there's different ways in which we're supposed to handle God's Word to do, like you said, the different ministries and, and things that we need in our lives. And this goes all the way towards the end. We're going to be talking about really personal things, like your personal devotions and you encountering God and his word there. But at the, at the top level, we're going to talk about studying the Bible, maybe in a more formal way than you're used to for things like to teach publicly or to maybe you're doing writing or you're thinking through your own personal theology and you're trying to learn about all that. And how do we use the Bible when we're coming for those purposes? So it's it, this is all stuff that might be a little more formal than you're used to, but that discipline will help prevent you know, mistakes that people can make sometimes when they approach God's word without understanding what they're doing. And that's really, really important. This is serious stuff, right? We're thinking through big things like theology and and we want to make sure we're coming correct. Yes. So this is where usually the process will begin for folks. And it begins with assumption. It begins with presupposition. And what we've tried to do in these first four messages is to explain our own presuppositions, explain how we ought to be thinking about the Bible before we jump to this step and just start using it. So I know, especially in the last one, we gave a lot of bad examples and uh, a lot of the times the use of scripture by some of these people will will seem uh, shocking. And we think, how could you even get there? But that's because we're starting from different places. So we are now assuming that if you are with us and you're hearing this, that you believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. You believe that the book we have is the right one and that it's been translated correctly. And you know how you ought to be studying it, that it is God's word and literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, the illumination of the Spirit, and all the rest. And so now we're going to get into the practical everyday ways that we use the Bible. And the first one we're going to look at, this has been touched on by us quite a bit, and this is using Scripture to develop theology. Now, Zachary, most people do not consider themselves theologians and do not see themselves as developing theology, so why is this something the average Christian needs to know? Or is it? think it's a mistake to not consider yourself a theologian. I think, you know, I, I love, and I'm seeing this more now. People are kind of picking up on this. There's a podcast my wife listens to actually, where it talks about every woman, a theologian, where the idea is, look, you, you're supposed to know this stuff, right? You're not just supposed to leave that. Oh, my pastor, he knows theology. I just read the Bible. And sometimes even people will say that and it'll sound maybe spiritual. They'll say, oh no, you know, you with your theology, I just read the Bible and love Jesus. But the thing is, when we're doing that, we're thinking of theology as something it isn't. We sometimes think of theology as this stuffy thing that's done by people who maybe have even kind of pushed aside their walk with God just to get into book learning. That's not what it's supposed to be at all. What does it mean? It just says the study of God, right? Right. That's what theology is. It's the study of God. And I even know people, unfortunately, although I can understand where they're coming from, 
particularly our more charismatic brothers who will say theology is a waste of time. And the reason they say that is because they've seen so many of their most fiery and enthusiastic young Christians go off to seminary and get the life sucked out of them or maybe even get their, their faith ripped out of mm-hmm. them. So I understand that, but the solution to that is is not to stop doing theology, but to do it better. So that's what it is. Theology is the study of the things of God. And the Bible, of course, is our foundational source and pretty much our only source, And if you're a Christian, for developing theology about God. If we believe that God has spoken God has revealed himself. God has given us inspired commentary on who he is and what he's done. And we have inspired and approved and disapproved examples in scripture. Then we begin to draw conclusions about what we believe about God. But we've got to start from the Bible. So if we're going to be doing this, drawing conclusions from scripture, two main ways that theology is done. And it, it was not always this way. And uh, in fact, it, it only recently has come into popularity. But um, we're going to be looking at biblical theology as well as systematic theology today. And we have already touched on some of this. Let's start with biblical theology. Now, one of these sounds better than the other. <laughs> right. I was actually just going to say, I was going to say, hang on a second, Pastor. I, I thought that we always wanted our theology to be biblical. Well, I don't I, want I have heard that. I have heard people say, <laughs> right? well, we don't need a system. We just need the Bible. Well, I I agree with you, but uh, we're going to be positive on both of these things today. But let's okay. talk about what biblical theology is. This is actually very much a Calvary Chapel thing. If you've been around Calvary Chapel and you've seen and heard the way that we tend to arrive at theological conclusions, you already understand this. Because Calvary Chapel, I'll brag on us a bit, teaches verse by verse through the Bible, we get a very good sense for the proportion of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And we often talk about sovereignty of God and free will of man or uh, the gifts of the spirit. And maybe that would be a bad example of of this example here, but uh, that we know how much the Bible emphasizes one thing versus another. And so it is very difficult for a Calvary Chapel pastor, if he's doing his job, to be dogmatic on one side of a particular debate if the scripture speaks about both. So if I'm teaching through the the book of James, but I'm dogged on predestination and reprobation, I'm going to have a very difficult time because James doesn't talk about that. James talks about faith without works is dead. Now, on the other side of it, if I despise the doctrines of predestination and I don't want anything to do with any of that, and now I'm having to teach through Romans 9, 10, and 11, Uh, you're going to be stuck. And so because we do that, we arrive at a very biblical theology, which is we're not worried so much about boiling down what scripture teaches to the level of proposition. A proposition is a statement of fact. The Bible does not often give us this. It does. They're in there. But more often, it will give us a broad picture through story, through poetry, through prophecy, through didactic lessons and all the rest. And you can you we try to come to the end and arrive at propositions but biblical theology says let's just let the bible speak and give the biblical proportions on these things and of course zach the irony at least from my perspective is that calvary chapel has been doing this from the example of pastor chuck and we've been blasted for it before but now that seems to be the growing trend even among academic theologians right biblical theology to the point that if you come from you know my background is much more i kind of came up as more of like a lay person just being schooled and taught in, you know, sitting in a Calvary Chapel church. And I just kind of assumed, well, 
that's how you do theology, right? Is you just, you read the whole, people would always talk about the whole counsel of God, right? Is the phrase that we use where it's like, look, you, you don't just, in other words, you don't just cherry pick what one passage says and say, see, this says this. And therefore that's what the Bible says about this topic. You want to constantly zoom out and get the full amount of what scripture says about something so you can get a total picture. You put all those things together, even when sometimes one seems to emphasize something a little more than the other. And that full counsel of God was this phrase that always rattled around in my head. That's what you do. You never just grab one thing. you got to keep zooming out and make sure you see the full picture. So then when I found out that this was suddenly like an innovation that was being talked about, you know, hey, have we tried this new way of doing theology? And you were telling me that. It just kind of made me chuckle because I, I had just always assumed not because I'm super smart, but just because this is what I've been taught in that, hey, yeah, of course, that's how you would do it, right? Yeah. And uh, to be clear, it's, Calvary Chapel is not responsible for that. <laughs> right. uh, that's just the way things have gone. And, and the pendulum will swing another direction. But, uh, you know, Calvary Chapel is very much a pastoral ministry and, and has a pastoral heart, which is let's teach it the way the Bible teaches it. And the big difference between that and systematic theology is systematic theology tries its best to fit all the puzzle pieces together into a complete picture. Right. And that is a worthy endeavor. We'll get to that in a minute. Biblical theology says, let's not worry so much about making all the pieces fit together. If in this book, God says something 110% in this direction, let's talk about that. Let's chase that theme throughout scripture and let it stand on its own while knowing that there are other themes to consider. So this is why biblical theology can be a lot of fun is you can do something like let's chase down a specific theme throughout scripture. Uh, I actually already mentioned this some last time in the gospel of John where seeing Jesus and seeing God is a major theme of the book of John. It's not the only theme. It might not even be the main theme, but it's in there. And you can trace that through the rest of scripture as well about seeing God and Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock and he wasn't able to look upon God. And you look at Samson's parents who despaired because they saw the Lord and Isaiah saw the Lord, but he was always concealed by the, the smoke. And then you get to the end and you see John looking upon Jesus in the book of Revelation face to face. And uh, you bring John's statement out, we will see him as he is. And you can take that whole theme and stretch it throughout scripture. And it's not necessarily going to be super meaningful from a philosophical standpoint, but from a devotional and a spiritual standpoint, like, wow, this is, this is really incredible. Zach, what are some other examples of, of themes you can chase through the Bible to make a, a biblical theology out of something? Well, we talked about like the idea of your works versus your faith or, you know, and even, even when you say versus, that's a, like kind of almost a systematic idea, right? Because that's not how scripture presents it. It says, no, faith and works. It says grace and decision, you know, and it puts those all together. So I think of that, I think of the idea, and this is where you could do like thematic things. Like you can say, well, here, here's the call of Moses. I wonder what happens when God calls people and you just go grab all those narratives out of scripture and you lay them together and just say, Hey, when God calls people to a certain work, it, it, he kind of does these similar things every time. And you can start learning from that. Right. And, and I think that this is one of the benefits. I think if we're talking about the positive aspects, this is one of the benefits to me of biblical theology is I think it protects you sometimes from misapplying passages what do I mean by that? Like if you've ever uh, talked to somebody, let's say that they're a newer believer or they're maybe struggling right now with something and they come to you and they point at one of those verses and they say, well, this says this. So that means I'm in trouble or this means this or, and they're really tore up about it. And you kind of gently say, oh, well, yeah, I see that. But have you thought about how the Bible also says 
right? And then you'll right. flip over to, you know, to another book and say, it also says this. So yes, this is true, but you have to fit that into this broader picture. And it protects people sometimes from doing themselves some damage in their faith by not understanding that you can't just grab this verse and allow the enemy to use it to condemn you or maybe even use it to condemn your brother, right? Yeah. And so I think it gives us these good guardrails and, and makes us think through, well, God, God is not a liar, so these two things can't be competing. They have to work together. Right. So here's an example that comes. Uh, Kostenberger and Fur have written a, a book called Inductive Bible Study, and they have a chapter on this. And the example they use is, is helpful for us here. They say the Bible has an awful lot of things to say about God as a warrior. Like from even in the book of Exodus, like God is a man of war. And David said, God trains my hands for war. And the prophets talk about God as treading out the winepress of his wrath. And then in Revelation 19, Jesus comes riding into battle. And they said, this is a major theme in the Bible. And there's an, an awful lot of theological truth to be gleaned from that. But if you're just doing a, a systematic theology in the way that uh, our traditions usually do, you don't really have room for something like that because it doesn't contribute much to major propositional truths about God. Like they might, it might serve to illustrate that God is omnipotent. It's like that, that contributes to that, but you miss a lot of the, the fire and the drive and the power of it. Well, meanwhile, the Bible seems pretty excited to talk about God as a warrior. And there's a, a lot of different things you can chase down. So the best way to do this, if you want to do biblical theology, you want to gather together every passage in scripture that talks about a given theme and ju just basically trace the story. And it's not always going to have a, a narrative feel to it, but I'm just using it as an example. You trace the story here. Where are there, there narratives in scripture that talk about this idea? Where is there poetry in the Psalms or in the wisdom literature? Where do the prophets talk about it? Uh, where, where did Jesus bring it up? Where is it in the epistles? And you bring all these things together and you can start to arrive at some conclusion, conclusions about what these things mean. I mean, you could do a theology of marriage. You could do mm -hmm. a theology of prayer. You could do a theology of food. You know, I mean, you can mm -hmm. trace all this through the Bible. And these are things about which the Bible has definite things to say and are therefore theological conclusions, but might not fit under that broad category of what we call theology. So this is these are some of my favorite studies to do, especially around holidays. Like last Christmas, uh, I did a Bible study on the angelic perspective of Christmas. Now that's an obvious one because you see a lot of them in the angel stories, but then you can trace together in the in the epistles or Paul talks about the gospel was was for the observation and instruction of the angels. Mm -hmm. And you look in the Old Testament where that idea is there too, that the angels are watching and observing what God is doing. And uh, you talk about where Peter says that Jesus went down into the depths and proclaimed the gospel to the angels that were in prison. And that all of a sudden you've got this really amazing theme of that the gospel is not just for people, but it's for angels as well. And that has amazing, even philosophical implications, but it's something you might miss if you were just trying to do uh, propositions and, and you know, do systematic theology. And you can hear, right, how this makes you pull back a little bit and it prevents you. Um, sometimes when you're only, if you're only thinking about the theology in a systematic way, or maybe you're even only looking at a passage in a systematic way. Let's say you're, you're, you're looking at a passage and you say, well, this passage says this, so I'm going to drill down into the language and I'm going to get really in the guts and I'm going to find out what is the thing that I need to know based on this passage. 
what you can be missing is, hey, what about this context over here? Or what about this other passage in scripture that has said something about a similar thing? And you can even hear as you're talking about like studying thematically, that forces you to pull back a little bit and it enriches, right? It, it actually deepens your understanding of what all the counsel of God has to say about a thing. And it prevents you from that thing that sometimes can happen when if you are going a mile deep on a passage, you can end up when you come back out of there saying some things about this topic that might actually be wrong because you've not considered some additional things that are said in scripture. So it's a, it's a good, it's a good protector against that. And like, yeah, you, you come across some really awesome stuff when you lay all that stuff together uh, in scripture. And it opens it up a little bit too. Mm -hmm. I mean, if something doesn't fit into the, the classic categories of systematic theology, it's still important because it's still in the Bible. And the advantage of it is it prevents you from being, like you're saying, too dogmatic on something where the Bible maybe has more nuance to it. If the Bible maybe doesn't see fit to smooth out all the edges. I mean, you could do a theology of violence, for example, Ooh, where the Old uh -huh, Testament, God yeah. very much orders his people to execute sinners, and he sends Joshua out into conquest, and David, uh, you know, did some very violent things that the Lord approved, Phineas, right? Mm -hmm. But then you can add this to where Jesus said, uh, you know, love your neighbor and turn the other cheek. But then Jesus also said, take swords with you when you go. And and there's going to be some tension in that. There's right. going to be some places where it's very clear that God expects his people even to take violent action. Yet at the same time, we are not to be violent people as a rule. So how does that fit together? That's biblical mm -hmm. theology. You're not necessarily going to open up a systematic theology and find that find that in there. And this is why Calvary Chapel is is kind of known for this, is because we're in the Word so much, it's hard for us to to push it. Now, here's the shortcoming as we transition to the other side here. The shortcoming of biblical theology is that you can start to, to give certain themes uh, systematic weight. And what I mean by that, let me give you an example. The glory of God is a huge theme in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And men like Jonathan Edwards and more recently John Piper and so on have have kind of made that their thing. Yeah. Is the glory of God is is the most important thing. But and it is incredibly important. And it even sounds bad to say that it's not, but that's because that I believe that is a biblical theological point that has been elevated to the most important biblical theological point. And it can feel so overwhelming because it's presented in a very great biblical theological way. Look at all of this stuff that talks about this. And it's like, wow, that's that's kind of hard to argue with. But I would then throw out again the kind of this balancing thing you've got to do is, but what about all the places where the, it says that the Lord is motivated by love and God created for our sake and he did these things for our sake. And he's not just doing things out of self-interest, but out of out of uh, disinterest. He's doing it out of a love for us and for people. And you, you can get to the point where if the Bible says something like, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, when he says he loves the world, what he really means is he wants his own glory to be known. It's you, Now you're, you're pushing it. Hmm. Now you're making this theme the only theme. And I, you can apply that to boldness in prayer versus accepting the answer of God that might be no in prayer. All right, there's plenty of places that tell us to keep knocking and keep asking, and yet there are places that tell us you've just got to sometimes sit back and trust that God knows what he's doing. So that's the danger of biblical theology. Now, when you get into systematic theology, we are much more concerned with organizing everything into, again, propositional 
truth. So Zach, help me understand the difference between a propositional truth about God versus what we've been discussing here, which are maybe thematic or biblical theological truths so, about God. So like this is one of those where you're going you're gonna to open up a great big systematic theology and you're, here's, here's a chapter that says the doctrine of God. And you're going to open it to the first page and it's going to start making these statements. Because of scripture, we know that God's character is like this. We know that God's nature is like this. We are aware that God's, you know, intellect is like this. And it kind of lays out these propositional statements. Because of this evidence in scripture, this is a thing we can know about God. And even in, in saying it that way, that's very, very important, right? The reality is that scripture has given us a lot of information and material to know about, you know, propositions about what? About the world, about, um, you know, about who God is, about who we are. I th You think of like, uh, here's a good example of this, like a catechism. I, I, I'm working my kids through a, a version of a catechism that's for evangelicals and, and, and it explains like, God has made you like this. God's character is like this. Your sin is like that. And it's a little, little memorizable phrase for them so that they know something about who they are, who God is, right? That's, that would be propositional, like systematic theology kind of boiled down. Right. So let's use the example of God as a warrior, right? That's how the God, the Bible will present God. And there it's, you know, I'm simplifying for the sake of instruction here, but so you say, you read, let's say we read a passage where it says, God is a mighty warrior who will crush his enemies for oppressing his people. All right. That's that's an image. That's a very vibrant, vivid picture, and it's very clear what he's trying to get across. But to make that into propositional truth, say, okay, God is a warrior who crushes his enemies for oppressing his people. What do we learn about this? We one proposition number one: God is all powerful. God is omnipotent. That means God is able to execute his will upon the world without hindrance. Okay, that's a proposition. God is omnipotent. Although there will be places that say that in the Bible, that's not the primary way God Bible reveals things about God. Another proposition would be uh, God is just. He does not like injustice. So God is omnipotent. God is just. He, he believes in fairness and righteousness. And you could also add to that God has people. Now, this thing seems so basic, but what systematic theology is endeavor to do, endeavor to do, is they will take all of the text, you know, hopefully all of the text of scripture, take all of the available information and arrive at a system that says this is what the Bible teaches in plain, or maybe not so plain sometimes, in plain <laughs> English yeah. about, and here's, help me out with the categories, Zach. There's theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. You've got Christology which is the study of Christ. So this is where you get things like uh, the hypostatic union. The Bible never comes out and says right. the hypostatic union. What it says in some places is that Jesus was a man. Another place said that Jesus was God. Another place is it explains how those two things work together. He emptied himself and then he took his glory and he dwelt among us. And he's the man is the mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. And, and so the church fathers, as they work through this, and especially as they combated heresy, right. they arrived at a propositional statement, which is Jesus Christ has both the nature of God and the nature of man without mixture. 100% God, 100% man. And the technical term for that is the hypostatic union. 
The Trinity is another example of that, yeah, right? Trinity and is what actually, work us through that? Trinity was a great example because I was going to say, look, you, you know, and, and sometimes even people who are not Trinitarian, they'll point, well, but the Bible doesn't say the Trinity, which, you know, you can be scared by that until you realize, no, this is why systematic theology exists. We have to review everything in the Bible and boil it down and say, yes, but who, what is the nature of God? And we Christians have worked for 2000 years on this and we've made some very clear statements of, well, this is what God has revealed about himself as Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we can't just throw that out because, oh, that's so fancy and, and systematic. We're just Bible-believing people. No, this is this is us working with the Bible to state clear things. That's why it's very important. And and the, and so that's why those important categories that sometimes you can be tempted to say, oh, that's, that's too much for me. No, they're important. The, the idea of like, you know, um, pneumatology. Yep, the that's study the third of, one, the, the study, study of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Um, you know, what, you've got your angelology. Angelology, your, ecclesiology, yep, the, study the study of the church. church. Anthropology, which is the study of man, and specifically in a theology context, this is the Bible's doctrine of man, not right. like, you know, how do the Zulu warriors fight their battles? <laughs> right, your homartiology. Uh, homartiology, the study of sin. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Eschatology, which is the study of last things. Uh, and, and you can really, sometimes these categories can be a little fluid mm -hmm. um, going back and forth, but uh, you get the idea. So you're, you're arriving at propositional statements about, so for I mean, here's a soteriological statement. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Now there are passages in the Bible that say that, right. but that is us taking all the passages about salvation, synthesizing them together and arriving at one statement that summarizes all of it. And that's, I think, two key things when you think about systematic theology is there's synthesis, meaning I'm going, biblical theology might assemble all of those things and then, and then weave kind of a theme and say, this is all the things that are said. Systematic theology puts them together into a synthesis and says, these, I have to make a statement. And I think sometimes, well, I'll say a lot of times, systematic theology is applying logical and philosophical tools to do that. The yes. Trinity is a great example. Like we said, you know, so the, God reveals himself very clearly in Scripture, but the reason that we have the doctrine of the Trinity is godly men have applied their minds, their learning, their understanding, their logic and philosophy to that and said, okay, if these things are all true, how would that work together? Yes. And they've built a framework to understand that, right? Now, that can sound scary, like, oh, that's outside of the Bible. And in a sense, yes, they are helping us to understand, helping our human minds to understand these things. But it's not just willy-nilly. They're using the scripture to build that framework. And that's why you call it like a systematic. The system is something that is referring to scripture and helping organize and assemble those ideas in a way that we can understand them and in a way that preserves their integrity, Right for, right, for our minds. So, I mean, you read like the sermon, not the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Last Supper where Jesus is talking mm. to uh, the disciples in the Upper Room Discourse, and he talks about, you know, I will send you the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father, who will testify of me, and, the, and through him the Father will come to you. You know, that's a very, the intention of that passage is to comfort you and to excite you. Right. But as an, as an analyst, and I mean that in a good sense now, you mm -hmm. step back and you go, okay, so Jesus is distinct from the Father who is distinct from the Holy Spirit. Right. So there's three of them, but we know there's only one God. So how can that be? And that's where you arrive at the Trinity. I mean, the Trinity is the ultimate example of synthesis of Bible doctrine. Right. The Bible teaches that there are three, but they are one. And that's an, one of the most incredible, mysterious things. And you can always tell the mark of good systematic theology and that it helps you understand the rest of the Bible and that it accommodates all of, of Bible doctrine. Mm. Now, here's where uh, you can get off 
with systematic theology. Here's the problem. And this is, more people want to harp on this uh, than I think is is healthy. Uh, Calvary Chapel has historically not been a big fan. I Maybe maybe it's the wrong way to put it. Not a big fan of systematic theology because the accusation, and it's a, it's a true accusation, is that people become more attached to their system than they are to the Bible. Mm. And you start reading the Bible as a covenant theologian, for example, and you're reading that into scripture. So covenant theology says that there really is only one covenant between God and man, and that there's not been any changes in the way God has dealt with men. Well, then that becomes very difficult when you understand, well, then what exactly changed between Israel and the and the church? And then what about all these promises that God made to Israel? If you're just reading your, your structure into the the text, you're in trouble. And so that's where the correction came in biblical theology is like, well, we've got to be able to say everything that the Bible says in our theologies. But I think that if we want to be honest, I think just in the air right now, Zach, is kind of that air of deconstruction, which is a, an, a cultural allergy to systems right. and a cultural allergy to any kind of structure. And we want to make sure we don't import that into the church. But, here's the, but here's the danger is that you read it in. So I think dispensationalism, which is the opposite of covenant theology, dispensationalism believes that there are different means in which God has worked, different administrations of God's worldwide government in the Bible. And that, I think, is the best way to accommodate all of the text of Scripture without forcing it to say something that it doesn't. For example, that Israel is no longer the chosen people of God. Right. Like that. Yeah. But when you start reading the Bible with a, a dispensational framework first, that can allow you to miss some things. And you mm. can start to say even heretical things like that there are different means of salvation. Right. Or you, this maybe is not heretical, but is just a little unfortunate. For example, that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to Christians today because that's intended for God's kingdom, which hasn't come yet. As well, it's a little more fluid than that. So as long as your system and your structure is helping you grasp all of Scripture and, and give you uh, a, a kind of theological shorthand for different doctrines, that's that's when it's helpful. Yeah, the red flag that I notice, and I see this in myself or in other people, if you're if you're coming to the text in Scripture and you're reading it and you look at the plain meaning of that text and you say, well, it seems, <laughs> is the word that I always hear, it seems that this is saying this, but we know it can't be saying that, <laughs> fill in the blank, because of the system that we've adopted. So therefore, let's find out what it really means. That to me, you may have, you may be guilty of, of, giving more weight to your systematic understanding of a theology than to the what scripture is saying. That's where biblical theology corrects us. It says, no, 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 all of these things have to live together. And if there's tension, we have to let there be some tension. We can't iron it smooth with our, with our heavy systematic theology. That's a danger. Yeah. I think sometimes the danger you hear from biblical theology is when I hear somebody like you said, say, well, what the Bible is really about is something. And I'll always say, well, wait, the Bible's about a lot of things. Like yeah. I don't, I don't know that we it's can a big book, right? I don't know that we can <laughs> distill it down to well, really, what the Bible is about this and anything that doesn't apply to my favorite theme doesn't really matter. So both of those, you you want to listen for the phrases like that and just you know, watch out for maybe some of the shortcomings. But I think we've been talking about you can see how there's good times and ways to use both of these things. You can't really throw either one out. Ideally, good biblical theology will lead to some systematic conclusions. Right. And I'll I'll say, I am a big fan of systematic theology. I'm sitting here in our office and I've got nine or 10 of them on the shelf to my left. And I have in fact read some of them all the way through. And the, the danger about reading a systematic theology is you are 
just about never going to agree with everything somebody says because they're telling you their their theories, not their theories, their conclusions about everything. Right. And so you're not going to agree with everybody on everything. But I would encourage those of you that are really interested in theology, especially those of you who are pastors, you need to read some of these. Mm. You need to get them out and you need to read them all the way through, start to finish, do like a chapter a day or something. Um, if you're coming from our perspective as Calvary Chapel Evangelical Conservatives, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology be a great place to start. Very accessible. And of course, right away, I'm thinking of things that I don't agree with with Wayne Grudem <laughs> that I want to caution everybody, but I just won't. I mean, he's a brother in the Lord yeah. and read it and you, you'll agree with some of it. You'll disagree with some of it. And some of this is the meat and potatoes that guys just need to get. And you need to be conversant with the traditions that have come before us. Uh, and I use tradition there in a very positive sense. That's doing theology, biblical theology, systematic theology. Uh, find good examples and go with those. And, right. uh, you know, they're, it's very easy to find them. I will say that a lot of most of the evangelical systematic theologies you'll find are coming from a Reformed or a Calvinist perspective. That's fine. And you should read John Calvin, even if you're not a Calvinist. I mean, Armenians should read John Calvin. Read the Institutes of Christian Religion, right? You, you need to know these things, right. even if you disagree with some of their conclusions. Like, go ahead and read them, but just recognize that most of them will come from that perspective and don't be overwhelmed by the weight of the multitude of witnesses. Because if they're all saying the same thing, uh, then it's you could have the same, re- same reaction to it. So let's move on from that. So that's theology, and we'll go a, a one step down, which is actually to the the work that we've been describing, which is just the study of the Bible. Mm. Now, you will kind of do theology implicitly as you go. You'll arrive at conclusions, and you'll maybe systemize, systematize some things or pick up on some favorite themes and understanding of the Bible, but most folks are not going to sit down and just write out theology. So, <laughs> right. but most people, I should say all Christians should study their Bibles. Mm. So Zach, what is the difference here now between, would you say studying the Bible and, and doing theology? There's some overlap, but like, what are we focusing on here? I think what I think of when I think of studying is like, look, you're going to flip open a, a book. I think might be a good way to start and say, look, I'm just going to chew on this until I understand Isaiah. Right, I picked a big one. I'm I'm just about to start Isaiah. Okay, that's a big one. But hey, it's a big book. It's important, important book. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read Isaiah, and I'm just gonna read it. But I'm gonna start chewing on. I'm gonna get a highlighter out, and I'm gonna say, well, look at that word. That's all over the place. Let's what's what's that doing? And then I'm gonna after I've read it a couple times, maybe I'll say, okay, well, what what in here? This reminded me of this other place in scripture, and I'll compare those two things. And then maybe I'll go get a good book that talks just about Isaiah. And tells me about some things and I'll read that through. And then maybe I'll, you know, I'll, I'll think through some of the themes and do a little theme study. That's that work of studying, right? Is you're taking a section of scripture. Maybe it's a chapter. It's, it's something bigger than just a couple verses probably, right? It's, it's a little bigger and you're working it over it to gain a really deep understanding of all the different things that it's saying. And, and you're not starting, right? In other words, you don't sit down and say, here's my theory about prophecy you start from the text and you go up and you kind of dig in there and, and see what is it telling me based on studying it in depth. Right. So this is different from devotions in that, mm-hmm. although they, they will be overlapping, uh, is that you're not just trying to get your nugget for the day. You're not just trying to read it to find out what's going to you know get me through this afternoon or get me through traffic. And that's important. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bible study is I am trying, like you said, to understand this book. Now, the pastor's job is to do this full time. 
In, in the apostles in the book of Acts, they said that we, we can't be given over to other things. We need to be giving ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. God has given us teachers in the church whose job is to do this full time. I am one of those people. That's my job to do this. But it is also the responsibility of every Christian by the illuminating light of the Holy Spirit to get into the Bible, study it, and try to understand it. So, Zach, will you review for us? Last time we talked about the basic inductive Bible study method, which is observation, interpretation, and application. Right. We're not going to repeat all that, but can you just summarize it? Because this is the process you're going to go through when you open your Bible and start studying it. Yeah, real quick. So you're going to open it up. Let's say you're going to read a chapter of Isaiah. And for the first thing you're going to say is, okay, what is there? What did I just read? What does it say? What are the words? What What does that you know, and you're going to make very simple things. Well, here Isaiah said this. Sometimes you restate it for yourself. Isaiah said this, then he said that, right? Then interpretation is going to be, okay, well, yeah, but what does that mean? So Isaiah said these things. Well, why did he say that? What does it mean? How? Wh- what, wh- what was he going on when he said that? You might go try and find a little bit of background and get a little context. Well, what did he say right after that? What was what was happening before? And then application is going to be, okay, so what? Like, what, what, what should I do with this? Why does this matter to the church? Why does this matter to us now? Why does this matter to me? Um, and that's that's just the real simple kind of phases you're going to go through in inductive Bible study. Yeah, that's basically it. What does it say? Observation, right? And, and we talked about this last time. It takes longer than you think right. to observe everything that's there, especially in Isaiah. Man. Yeah. Well. Uh, interpretation. What does it mean? So what is what does this mean here? And sometimes those are very obvious things that you just write out, right? God hates sin. That's obvious, but that is what he means. And then application, which is now what are we going to do about it? So that's more or less the process you're going to go through. Now, I depending on, on obviously I'm studying to preach every week or multiple times a week, and I'm also usually doing books and, and other things. But uh, when I'm actually sitting down to study the Bible, the first thing that I'll do is I'll, I'll read it through. I'll, I'll decide on a section. I would suggest pick one complete thought is a good place to start studying your Bible. And that's about at the at the paragraph level. Maybe a small paragraph level is the best place to do this if you're just doing it day by day. And you want to, first of all, make sure you've understood everything that is said there. And uh, Zach, what are some tools that we can use to start doing that? In terms of like the, the, like the inductive study? Yeah. I, so, I mean, you can do it yourself. I mean, right. read it. I mean, I guess you could even just start with this. I mean, what are some methods you do to help you when you study? I mean, like even something as basic as underlining the passage, yeah. right? Literally, I, I like to under, if something sticks out to me, I underline it. I key like words. Uh, yeah, keywords is like a helpful that. one. If, there's some really cool tools for, uh, K. Arthur has some tools for inductive Bible study that I remember I learning when I was younger. And I still, if I'm trying to really go deep on something, I'll take different colored highlighters or like little, those little pencils that won't bleed through. And I'll just start picking out a word that I see everywhere. And I'll say, well, I'm going to underline that with this color every time I see it. And then it'll all go in there. And then I'll take the next word or phrases or whatever. And what that does is it sounds kind of silly. Like, what's the point of that? What you're doing is you're actually getting a visual on the page for the structure of what God is saying. Hey, look how God keeps saying this phrase. It seems like it's important because this phrase keeps being repeated. Okay, well, what what is that phrase about? It keeps coming back. Well, here God's using this name for himself or here he's calling the people this specific thing, right? And that's going to help you. That's an observational tool. Underlining sometimes uh, cross-references. Again, mm-hmm. these, these are really simple. Cross-references, some Bibles will just tell you, hey, heads up, this verse might have something to do with this verse you're reading. So you go yeah. look that up and you lay them out together and you say, okay, are these the same context? What does this tell me about this thing I'm reading? Yeah. Um, now here's one. My seventh grade ghost is going to haunt me for saying <laughs> this, but uh, if you're really interested in this, you're what, what we're trying to do is make sure that we understand what this is. Right. Diagramming the sentences. Oof. 
can be very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I know that that sounds so dorky, but (laughs) here's here's my sentence diagramming story. So I remember in seventh grade English, Miss Arthur was her name. And I I was a good student. I could not get that diagramming thing down. So I just kind of like faked my way through that section. Didn't have to worry about it again until I get to my Greek Mm -hmm. classes in in (laughs) seminary. And they start telling us, you're going to diagram this entire book. And I first started out, and he's like, you all learned this in school, kind of, so here's how, and I just could not get it. So what I did is I went out and bought a book on sentence diagramming. I still have it, and I started reading it, and I started learning how to do this and, and taking extra time to diagram sentences. And eventually, I started getting perfect scores on all of those. So then the next semester, when I took the same class again, which was a, an exegetical Greek class. My professor, Dr. Brindle, he said, so Tyler, you you have a really good grasp on sentence diagramming. Would you uh, take today and would you just teach everybody the method that I want them to be using? So the supreme irony is that I went from being the worst at this <laughs> to actually teaching it to the rest of the class and being everybody's go-to guru on sentence diagramming. <laughs> but here's why it helps, especially in the epistles where Paul's got these like half a chapter long sentences. Mm-hmm. What is the operative verb here? You know, pastors, if you want to know how to outline a passage, diagram it. You know, you find what is the operative verb? That's your main point. And then what are all the additional things he says in addition to it? Those are your sub points. And that's how I've outlined tons of Bible studies is doing that. But you're trying to get it. You're circling words that you don't understand or names that you don't get. Mm -hmm. Go look them up. Try to understand this. And and some other tools that go with that. You said cross-references. If you know your Bible really well, you probably will be really good at thinking of cross-references. And uh, I I think that's something that I do very well, is I'm very good at coming up with four or five verses that also relate to that. But if you're new to this, or maybe if this is just something that's a little harder for you, then there are tools. And you mentioned like in the middle of your Bible, if you have what's called a reference Bible, it'll have a list for every verse of three or four other verses that might relate to that, especially if there's a quotation or an allusion to something. But also there are are, uh, like the treasury of scripture knowledge. Like where else can we find good cross-references to help us out? Yeah, I was going to say, if you hear pastors referring to the TSK, they're talking about the treasury of scripture knowledge, which is a really well-loved reference for a reason. It's it's so helpful because it will, you will look at a phrase or a verse and it will just give you every possible cross-reference. By the time you've read through those cross-references, you will know (laughs) all of the stuff that the Bible says about that thing or that, or that's connected to that verse. Um, What's really helpful is nowadays, if you go to a reference like Blue Letter Bible, or maybe you use Logos. Talk about Blue Letter Bible for a minute. Blue Letter Bible is my, that's my thing. Like it's, it's, it's It's a a a website. It's a Bible study website. Yep. Free reference to use. And what can, happen is you can pop open a chapter and you can click on different tools within a specific verse and they'll have different things. One of them is they'll have cross references. It will lay out for you everything that the treasury of scripture knowledge has to say about this verse. And it's right there for you for free instantly. And then you can click, it's all interlinked. So you can click on each verse and it'll take you to that verse and you can see it. And then you can use those cross references from there. And you have to be careful because you're drifting now from the original passage, but it's all right there for you to instantly access. It has interlinear. Uh, yeah, let's talk automatically about Automatically in there. So an interlinear is a, it's an English translation of the Bible. Right. Alongside the Greek and Hebrew, right, so that you can see which words correspond to which Hebrew and Greek words. Now, you've probably heard your pastor do this before when he says, "In the Greek, this means that." And uh, I, it's funny when I was in seminary, I was told, uh, and I mean, like taught from the teachers, like nobody's interested in the Greek and Hebrew. Don't talk about it. They don't care. 
And I have found the exact opposite of that yeah. to be true. Like <laughs> yeah. just from my own experience now that people really like that and, and they need to care. Right. Right, <laughs> you, right. You need to care because you are reading a translation mm-hmm. and you need to know what your translation says, which is, I think I did this on Wednesday night, actually, in the book of Numbers, where I proposed a different translation for one of the words there. And I said, this is what I teach from the English Standard Version. I said, this is what this one says. It's fine, but this is why they translated it. And you pull out here. Here's the Hebrew word. This Hebrew word means this. So you can see because it means that why they translated it this way. But I think they missed the sense and maybe the NIV does it better. But even still, I would say that. Mm. And that comes from me being to school and having learned Greek and stuff. And But uh, you can still do this as a, as a, just a layman, as a brother, sister wanting to study. Sometimes like a whole phrase will come from one word. Or sometimes uh, the opposite of that will be true. Or sometimes it'll, you know, when it says heart of mercy, the old translation says bowels of mercy. And you go, why in the world would they say bowels of mercy? And maybe it doesn't change the meaning of it, but it just adds a little bit of color and it it protects you from going off into weird weird, uh, directions. The the reason in your linear, if you're listening to all this and saying, well, so I've got to go off to college and do four semesters of Greek before I can do this, the interlinear is actually your friend. As a person who has some Greek background, but not as much as what Tyler's talking about, the interlinear is there to help you if you know how to use it, right? You have to be careful because it gives you a lot of information. And if you don't know what's going on, you might misuse that information or not understand. But if you go through, there's YouTube videos, there's plenty of people who are ready to teach you how, what you can do with an interlinear text. And what it's going to do is it's going to give you kind of the background to why you'll start to learn as you use it, why it is that they translated it in this way. And it'll give you an automatic, you know, like the strongest concordance, which says, hey, this word shows up, let's say a hundred times in the Bible and 99 times they translated it this way. And over here, they translated it that way. Now that doesn't automatically mean that the one time is wrong, but it's just giving you the full background of the usage of that word. Those are really valuable things, especially if you're not a Greek whiz, but you want to come to the text and understand what it, what it says, why it says that this is kind of giving you this x-ray vision (laughs) into the Greek. And it's really helping you. It's a great tool to say, oh, wow. And you can say things like, okay, so uh, we look at this, here it is in the ESV. Now, what this Greek word, the, the full sense of this, you can give some phrases from the Strong's, and now you're able to enrich your understanding and people's understanding of, of that Right, phrase. so it's not, going to the Greek is not to get a different translation. Exactly. What you're doing is, so for, I mean, an English word maybe can mean one of two things, mm-hmm. right? This can mean either this or that, depending on the context. Well, sometimes you go in the Greek word is not ambiguous. It's very clear. So, all right, of these two options of how to take this English, English word, we know it's this one. Mm-hmm. Or this sentence is kind of long and convoluted. Where is the emphasis supposed to be? Or where does the comma go in this sentence? Sometimes going to the Greek will will give you that. You mentioned a concordance, and Strong's concordance is the famous one, but there are a lot of others now. And um, I that's one is keyed to the King James Version, so I don't use that one as much. But a concordance is basically a list of every place in the Bible Every word in the Bible is used. It's an enormous index for the scripture. You actually probably have one if you flip to the back of your Bible, if you've got a reference Bible, and it'll list like 
justification, grace, prayer, miracles, and it'll give you different places where it uses those words. That's a concordance. Uh, I tend to use Hebrew and Greek concordances, but English ones are great too. They're great for me when I'm like, I know there is a verse somewhere that says this, (laughs) and I just can't find it. And so I love using online concordances because you can just search it, and it's so much faster than than flipping with your fingers, even though I, I tend to prefer hard copy books than uh, the internet. But a couple other resources you can go through. Again, this is about studying the Bible Mm -hmm. and different ways for you to do this. Commentaries. Mm -hmm. A commentary is a book that somebody has written explaining a passage of scripture. I read between eight and 10 commentaries for every Bible study that I do. So when I'm about to study a new book, one of the things I'll do is I'll go out and buy several commentaries on the book. And Of course, the danger here, I don't want to spend too much time on the danger, but there is a danger where you are no longer reading scripture, you are reading somebody's opinion on scripture, somebody's interpretation of scripture. But as long as it is a good person, like it's a believer, it's a brother, or even if it's not and you know that, then it's helpful. So I try to get a wide range. I try to start, start with what are the best ones. And there are different resources you can get for this. There's one resource I used to use, but unfortunately has uh, gotten rather progressive and woke lately. And I don't know if I trust it so much anymore, but so I'll leave that aside. But there are uh, places that will say, this is the one. And you can usually tell if you start reading three or four commentaries and they're all referring to this one guy. I think of Harold Honer's commentary on Ephesians. There are some commentaries that people have written on Ephesians, and they're basically just copying Honer. <laughs> so it's like, get his, read that one. Uh, if you're doing Romans, uh, Douglas Moo's commentary, or uh, what's the other guy's name? James Dunn's commentary. Two very different perspectives on Romans, but everybody's quoting from them. So you get the best ones. You also want to get some good ones that you agree with. Zach, do you ever feel bad sometimes about just reading stuff you agree with? I do. It's weird that something, well, I shouldn't just read what I I agree with, but it's so refreshing when you actually do. I feel bad. Oh, I don't know if I feel bad, but what we've talked about a lot of times is, you know, you have to be careful sometimes with commentaries because the reality is commentaries are produced by scholars. That's not a bad thing. But what that means is that sometimes if, if there's a trend or a fad going on in scholarship in the Bible, that's what all the commentaries are going to be talking about. So at some point, let's, let's, what's an example? If there is a trend, a fad right now towards um, materialist understanding of the Bible, people are writing tons and tons of commentaries who don't believe in supernatural things and may not even believe in the Bible or, you know, the Lord at all. So you're going to find a lot of those commentaries if you look. And you can spend, you know, you there may be some things you can pull out of those sometimes for context, even though you have to be very careful of their understanding or interpretation of history even. But when you come back then to just, a, a you know, a pair of six shooters, you know, fire and brimstone preacher who's doing a commentary on that passage, you're going to be like, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's right. Like this is what, so I think it's, it's good to have, let's say, like you said, a range of commentaries you're going to consult, but make sure you don't go all in on one type of commentary or one school of thought because it can, not only can it not be as useful for you, but it can start to push your ideas or understanding. Yeah. In a Some way. guys, it's funny. Like they say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to read guys I agree with. So they read a bunch of guys they don't agree with and they propagandize themselves out of you know, their right. own ideas. Right, 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 right. So, well, this is what everybody's saying. It's like, nah, that's just what you're reading, bro. Like there's, right. there's other stuff. So yeah, get some stuff that um, I'll try to find things that is too, a, to a, a drifts liberal. I don't want to read a liberal commentary on scripture unless I'm doing some kind of formal study because I just don't have the time to be reading guys that don't believe that Jesus 
really rose from the dead or that God inspired the Bible or that there were five Isaiahs. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, a good conservative commentary will summarize that for you. But I like to find guys that will drift liberal because that then maybe they're not going to say the worst version of it, but I can at least absorb it. And then I like to get, of course, guys that I agree with. And then you want to get a range of types of commentaries. Mm. So there's something called a, well, even before we get to that, you have whole Bible commentaries. And these are most... The average Christian's favorite are the whole Bible commentaries. And I think that if you're going to if you want to start reading extra stuff on the Bible, start with some of these. Warren Wiersbe has an excellent whole Bible commentary. Uh, it's it's two volumes, Old Testament and New Testament, and I think they have since published them in individual volumes for each book. But it's a it's a commentary on the whole Bible. Each verse is going to get like a sentence or two. And it's it still makes for a huge book. Um What's his name? William McDonald has a great one. Uh, Walvert and Zook, and they they have a great whole Bible commentary. Guys like uh, J. Vernon McGee, like their whole Bible commentaries. They're only going to give you a little a little taste. John Corson, a little taste for each section. Then you have individual commentaries, which this is going to be a series in most cases, where they hire a different author who is an expert on that book to write a whole book on commentating on just that book of the Bible. Hmm. So this is a commentary on Genesis, a commentary on Exodus. And that, if you are doing serious Bible study, especially if you're preaching, that's where you want to spend most of your time because that's where they're going to go in depth. You're not just going to get a paragraph on one on one chapter, you might get a chapter on a chapter. <laughs> you know, you might get a, a full, like they're going to dive into every aspect. They're going to look at the language. And so, and then within those, you have something called a pastoral commentary or a devotional commentary, which is only interested in kind of giving you, you know, your, your devotional thought for the day, very application heavy, moving up to something called a pastoral commentary. So first devotional, now pastoral, which is for the pastor. It's going to be expository, meaning it gets into the background, but it's got an aim towards the pastor preaching. So it will still, the new American commentary is this way. And that's put out, I believe, by the Southern Baptist Convention, or it's at least closely related to it. And they they are going to have good background, good information, but it's intended for somebody who's going to preach this. Then you have something called a technical commentary. And these are the big Berthas. These are the <laughs> the Greek and, and Hebrew heavy, theology heavy. They're going to examine ideas that you didn't even realize were part of the, of the conversation of theology. These are the ones that are going to uh, maybe not even give you application sometimes. They're just going to explain what it means. And um, I, I think the ideal commentary in my case, and maybe I'll write one someday, who knows, would be somewhere between pastoral and technical. Not all the way to the end where you're just a critic and you're just, a, you know, examining the redaction of the text, but you still have some some good theological meat. You gotta you gotta have a range of, of different ideas. And Zach, I think even somebody like Pastor Chuck's audio Bibles Bible studies can count as commentaries for you. Yeah, right? or you you'll find guys that use. Yeah, in fact, sometimes you can use a pastor's sermons as a commentary. Like uh, uh, Dave Guzik does great notes on every basically every chapter of the bible and you yeah can go so through david guzik would be an example of a uh, pastoral whole bible commentary yeah super helpful now the danger with a pastoral or even listening to other people's sermons this is maybe as, as we transition into okay now how do you prepare to preach right mm-hmm. the danger with some of this stuff it's all fantastic as you're studying and you're learning but you do want to be careful that you're not just 
absorbing what somebody says and then just parroting that or saying, oh, well, he says this, so it must be, you've got to spend some time, right? This is what the study's for. You're looking and you're saying, okay, all these people have said this. You spend time in prayer, you reason it out, and you come to a conclusion yourself. You don't want to just unthoughtfully just put stuff in and say, oh, that must be what it means. You're, 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 yeah. it's, it's a resource for you, not just a way to skip the work of the prayer and the consideration, right? But hey, also, you know, some people where it's like, oh, I don't use commentaries. I do all that work myself. Look, we we have this wealth of resource now of, of godly people who love Jesus, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have spent hundreds and hundreds of years looking at the same book that we're looking at. It would be a little bit foolish, <laughs> I think a little prideful if we didn't use that, right? Yeah, in, and don't be study. afraid to go back in time either. I mean, mm-hmm. when I was doing oh, Romans, yeah. I had uh, John Chrysostom's commentary on Romans. Martin Luther has a famous commentary on Romans. People have mm-hmm. been studying that book for a long time. Matthew Henry is another example of a whole Bible commentary yeah. written in like the 1600s, and people still use it. And you want to be careful not to fall into the academic trend of only reading the latest books. Read the best ones, not just the latest ones. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And moving on now, but I mean, just some other resources you can look for, guys. I use a Bible atlas almost every week. I have the atlas open in Mm -hmm. front of me and I'm looking at things. There are things called Bible dictionaries. Some of them, which will, they'll explain what biblical terms were, who this guy was, um, a classic one is the indu- the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, mm-hmm. ISBE. Maybe you've seen that reference. Topical that one's actually Bibles. public domain. That's available online. You can get it oh, free wow. now. Um, y- y- what were we saying there? Like a topical Bible sometimes will help you just in general. Yeah, just or a study Bible a, will yeah. kind of give you a, a condensed version of it. Um, um, backgrounds books, like backgrounds, a big old Old Testament background. Is, New Testament introductions, yep. Old Testament introductions. I have... One really conservative Old Testament survey and one pretty liberal Old Testament survey, and I read them both before I start a new book. Now I know which one I agree with, but I <laughs> I do want to be able to engage with it. So there's there are all kinds of great resources for for you all to pull from. And and when you're doing a study, it's sometimes it's not just a passage. You can do a study on like a one word, mm-hmm. like a good word study. You can do one on chasing themes through the whole Bible. Like I said, you can do character studies. All kinds of ways to study your Bible. Now let's get in, as you said, to the third use of scripture here, which is preaching. And this is not going to apply to every listener, but uh, it's going to apply to a lot of them. And I think it is a worthy aspiration for every Christian to be apt to teach, even if they will not hold the office of a teacher, Mm. you should be able to communicate it to somebody else. But we are talking about the formal preparation and study of the word of God. And we may do a full series on this. So uh, there's, there's plenty to talk about here. Zach, you teach for me sometimes why don't you just quickly run through your method what what's your what's your system for when you are going to study for for a new bible study right now you have nothing just a blank sheet of paper and maybe even you haven't even picked a topic yet how do you go through your process well a lot of so a lot of what we just talked about in 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 the study tools and stuff is applicable here but in terms of process, and this is something that I'll just say, if, if you think about this and your mind goes blank as you're listening right now, don't feel bad about that. This is something that a lot of times you, it takes a while for you to build a method. And it, I have asked a lot of guys to get tips on this. And that's been very helpful to me. I've, I've gone to ask people to say, hey, when you say I spend 10 hours studying, what do you mean? What do you do? Right. Mm-hmm. And so here's some things that I've come across that help me. And it may look different for you, but here's some good things to start with. Number one is I, let's say that I've, you know, it helps me usually because we tend to study a little more systematically. So it's very rare that I'm just going to pop up with, I need to pick a a chapter to study. I usually know in advance, Hey, the next thing I'm going to be studying is this passage in this book. 
So let's say I know, okay, I, I know that I stopped here and that's all I know. I stopped at this verse. What I'll do is I'll start reading from where we last were in, in the scripture. I will just spend some time reading for distance. I will read the next couple chapters or the next chapter and a half past where even I think I'm going to actually teach so that I'm not just stuck in this thing, but I'm getting the context. I'm going to read that several times. And as I read, you'll find that you just start observing automatically. You start saying, hey, huh, that's, it says this, that's funny. And what I do is I pop open a Word document or a notes document and I just start taking notes on what I'm observing. Um, one thing that might help you if you're not used to this is try and just see if you can restate or paraphrase what's going on in the text in your own words. Isaiah, you know, let's, let's use the Isaiah example. Okay. Isaiah is saying this to the people. Now he's, now he says that, then he compares the people to this. Then God says that he's going to judge the people like that. Just say it in your so own So you're words. just making notes on a, on a document, like yep. a mind dump kind yeah, of right literally. now. And I, and I do that for every, I try and do that for every verse as I go through and maybe I'll go a little longer than I'll end up needing. Cause I don't know where I'm going to stop yet. I haven't made an outline yet. I've just, I'm just saying what the text says. Then as I do that, maybe I'll get to where I'm like, okay, I'm surely not going to teach this long. I'm already through a chapter or something. I'll stop and I'll start reading over that paraphrase and looking at the scripture and I'll say, okay, where do I think? And I'll start looking, where do I think the, where's a natural place to break this? Where is the big idea that I, that I want to teach, right? Where's to, to start building an outline. And that's a skill you pick up over time. You say, okay, I, I think that the ideas are starting here and here's a natural place to break it. And that's when I'll start to outline. And what I mean by outlining is I'll say, okay, what if I was to put some big headings over these ideas in my paraphrase, where would those headings go? Okay, here God's t is, is talking about God's judgment. That's three or four verses here. Then the next three or four verses is talking about the people's response. I'm just making these up, right? But you're, you're noticing what are the big themes or the big sections in this new passage that you're going to outline. Once I finish my outline, that's where I start to say, okay, now I've got this outline. I start moving maybe into more, maybe I do a little more focused observation. Okay. If this is, if this is what I think the topic is here, you know, okay, what, what else is going on in this passage about that topic? And once you've got your outline, you've observed, that's where you're going to start moving carefully into interpretation and you're going to start going maybe to the, the, so you go that, that organized through it, like going, you do OIA pretty, I try to, cut. I used to be a little bit more willy nilly. And what I found was that I was skipping steps or I didn't do, I would go back and I'd finish teaching and I'd say, you know what? I don't really think I gave very much application there at all. And, and what I found was if I, if I make myself kind of go through these steps, I put the effort that I need to into each of them. And you, each of you are going to find that there's one of these steps that you don't do as well. For me, it's application. And so I have to make myself make a pass through each way kind of to do it. And it so, might not be, I might go OIA on a section and then move down, but I, I try and make sure I'm doing that pass on each. So bit. are you using resources at this point? Are you reading commentaries? Once I go to app interpretation, I'll start busting out. Uh, here's a commentary. Here's some notes. I'm going to look at the interlinear and what's my goal here on interpretation. I've got now what I think it says and both from the, the passage and from my like, you know, restating. Mm -hmm. And now in interpretation, I'm going to say, okay, what is, what does that mean? What is that? What passage does that remind me of? What's a cross reference here? Are That's you where you're frequently going to your stumped or are you just trying to, to make sure that you're not missing something? What do you mean? So if you're looking for interpretation in a commentary, how often do you find yourself going, well, I really don't know what this means or how, or are you like, I'm pretty sure I've got this, but let's, let's double check. 
it depends on the kind of thing I'm teaching. If 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 it's a passage that's got a lot of kind of thorny stuff in there, or let's say it's a passage that's really obscure, like like prof, prophets are a classic example. There, if I'm teaching through, I, I did Zechariah for you one time for the youth group. I was going, I was hitting commentaries. I was borrowing <laughs> commentaries from you. I was like, I don't even know what this means. I can't yeah. even, I can't even get through observation. And I had, or to even go, if you think you know what it means, it's like let's wrong. let's double check. Yeah, yeah. So I, for, sometimes I couldn't even get through observation. I had to say, what is this even? What is it talking about? Now, if I'm doing, let's say Matthew. I might get all the way through and I might just be checking, hey, did I miss something, right? Like you said. So it, it depends on the type of thing. Um, I like to at least make sure I don't teach it without consulting a couple commentaries. I would yeah, venture that my style is a little bit less deep on the commentary and then yours, which there's not a right or wrong. I yeah, could probably I, I bone up. I do a lot of that. So in, yeah. as, other than commentaries, what other resources do you like always use? Like, are you you're going to get into it? I always check the interlinear. I like using, I will check maybe one pastor's sermon notes. I try not to do too many of those because if you're, now remember we're talking about preaching, right? Yes. Sermon notes are fantastic when you're personally studying. I find that if I use someone's sermon notes before I have basically got my notes done, his notes are going to go into my study and that's not fantastic. <laughs> yeah, you're going to preach his right. And that's not study. fantastic. Cause I, that's not what God and, is telling me hey, to teach. Some guys will do that. And let me just tell you to stop. If you're listening. Yeah. 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 Uh, a lot of guys let's pick on Calvary chapel guys. will just open up blue letter Bible and take Guzik's notes and teach those. And I, I don't think they actually print them out and teach them, but they <laughs> right. basically reproduce them or they reproduce pastor Chuck's teachings. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other guys, they'll read John MacArthur and teach John MacArthur. And in, well, the words, in the words of Leonard Ravenhill, he says, if you preach somebody else's sermon notes, they're the, going to be the one to get rewarded for it in heaven, not you. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and I'll say too, because we're talking about preaching now, not even, not only like forget, you, you already learned in fifth grade that plagiarism was bad, but also that's what a man taught from his pulpit to his congregation that the Holy Spirit told him was good for the moment. When we're preaching, it's let's go past the study habits now. It's for an occasion. You better yes. be, you better, and I, this is something I'm growing in. I need to spend more time in. I like to, if I can, try and finish this whole process with enough time to go like on a walkabout with my notes, or, you know, and just pray oh, about, time, right? Like pray about what I'm doing because what am I doing there? Look, I know now what I think I'm going to say, but I've got to be asking the Lord. Yeah, but who is hearing me? And what out of these notes do you really want me to emphasize? Or is there something here that God says, that's just you, get rid of that, right? Yeah. And that's where I'm letting the Lord, because it's I'm not just teaching this to a random group of people. It's our people. Yeah, and to, be, and to be clear, the teaching of a passage, the teaching portion, very rarely will change between pastors hmm. or even over different times you teach it. Because... You know, there's, as we say, there's one interpretation, but there's multiple applications. Right. So, you know, if you're going to, uh, I don't know, you're, you're talking about the book of Genesis, right? Genesis chapter one. Pretty much everybody's going to be talking about this was written by Moses. They're going mm -hmm. to talk about, uh, you know, maybe get into the age of the earth thing a little bit. You know, they're going to break down all the kind of same stuff. You go to David and Goliath, right? You're not going to maybe learn anything different about that story, but it will be presented and taught to you in a, in a way that will be fresh and will be new. Can so, I ask Can I yes. ask about that? Because that's a big, I have found that if you're a new guy approaching it, that's a big challenge that people have is they get this feeling that they've got to, um, they've got to discover a new thing that, uh, so that, so that, like, in other words, it's like this pressure that you feel like if, if the people don't sit there and go, wow, I never knew that, or I never thought about that, then you haven't taught the passage. 
Do you feel that that's a misconception? Yes, I it, do. it is a misconception. Um, there will be many times during your life where you will learn something in the study of the passage that was always there, but maybe you didn't know about it, sure. or maybe somebody had not heard it taught before. That's not the same thing as developing and coming up with something new. You don't you don't want to always be doing that, especially if it's a passage that's well known. Mm. Like I, I don't mind telling you, I did Daniel in the Lion's Den the other day. I did not need to do as intense a study of that passage as usual. First of all, because it's reasonably plain what it says. And also because I've heard it taught a million times. And it's pretty pretty clear what the background is. And also most of the people that are there are going to understand that. Now, when I was talking about Belshazzar the, the week before, I learned all kinds of things mm. about the history surrounding that, that Belshazzar was the king regent and that there are Herodotus and other Xenophon who have... Uh, records of what happened that line up with what scripture says. And so I taught those things. Um, that was new and it was fresh, but I we wouldn't have lost anything if I didn't have that. Right. And it's not like I discovered something. It's like, oh, this is something new to me and it will be new to them too. In other words, your job isn't to be an innovator. No, right? please. Your job is no. to be a herald. <laughs> like you're, you're bringing scripture and saying, this is what God's word says and you're helping us to apply it to our hearts and our lives. And that should free you. You you shouldn't feel this pressure, right? Like I've got to come up with an with an insight. It's like no, look, like sometimes the Holy Spirit will give you something. You're like, oh my goodness, that's so crazy. I never thought yeah. about it that way. That's great. But don't always. And that might even apply when we get to devotions too. Those are those are not necessarily what you need to look for, or, or heaven forbid, what you're torturing out of the text. Because that's how you end up coming up with something that sounded like an insight to you, but it's actually just wrong yeah. <laughs> or not there. I mean, for example, I just finished reading a, a, some books about John Knox, who was in Scotland. Mm. And they would say that when John Knox preached for the first 30 minutes or so, they said he would teach in a, in a reasonable, even voice, just expositing the passage, just explaining what it means, background, you know, mm -hmm. context, language, all those same things that we do. And then they said after he had done that, that's when he would warm up and they said he would just about smash the pulpit to splinters <laughs> because he would right. be preaching to his day and age. And he had a very political bent to his ministry as well. You know, he would preach about Athaliah and then compare her to Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> so when you preach about right. Athaliah, I would imagine that your study of that passage, your conclusions about the background will be just like John Knox's. In fact, I would right. hope they would be. But when you get to the, the point of your message, you're not going to be preaching about Mary Queen of Scots anymore. You know, right. th there's going to be something else that you're drawing out. So that's, mm -hmm. that's what, that's what preaching is. And I'll tell you, I have weeks where I know what I'm going to say. Man, the Holy Ghost has just been on me. This is something I've been waiting to talk about. It's something that needs to be spoken about. And we go for it. There are other weeks where I got nothing. And I mean, in terms of my own my own cool insights, I've got nothing special to say. Right. So what, what I do in those days, I'm going to verse by verse this passage. I'm going to go for broke on the background, on the explanation, on the theology, on the word study, on the structure. We did this in Leviticus a lot. I spent a lot of time talking about the structure of Leviticus. And mm -hmm. that was a lot of fun because there's less application to draw out. So just teach it, man. Just teach it well. And if you teach it well, your application points will come about naturally. Let me run through um, Let me run through my teach, uh, preparation process here. I think having two different options here and, and different examples of how this is done might be helpful for somebody that's learning how to do this. So I usually, before I've done anything, I know what book I'm in and I have outlined the book ahead of time. 
so that I know where I'm going. Oh, so, so yeah. you do the whole book I first. I outline the whole book. Okay. And now, I don't get into like, you know, letter A, letter B, letter C. What I do is I lay out what my preaching sections are going to be, and I give a one or two sentence or half sentence explanation of what I'm going to talk about. And the reason I do that is because it is very easy to cut yourself off as you're preaching. And you make, you know, maybe in chapter one, it's a minor point. But in chapter three, it's a major point. But if you talk it to death in chapter one, when you get to chapter three, you've already kind of gotten into it. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Or you can uh, you can get yourself in trouble because you don't realize where the author is going with it. And so <laughs> you, you end up saying the wrong thing. I remember being in a Bible study one time where a guy was going through Ecclesiastes and he was talking about something that Solomon said and he was talking about it positively. And I'm like... But don't you know that in the next chapter, he's going to say, yet I discovered that all this was vanity. <laughs> it's like, so what are you going to say when you get to that next week? You know, so I will just, I mean, basic, like, mm-hmm. you know, chapter 21 and 22 is about such and such. So I kind of know where I'm going. And that outline is super fluid. I change it all the time. It also helps me kind of know how long it's going to be. And if it turns out this is going to be a 60 week Bible study, then maybe I need to condense it some. So once I've done that, I know what my subject is. First thing I do is outline the passage. And this has nothing to do with preaching. This is just the the, the structure and the flow of the passage. Starts here, goes here, goes here. Very often, this will coincide with the paragraphs that are broken up in your actual Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't want to just follow those blindly, but if you're never lining up with those, you're probably outlining it wrong. <laughs> so there's just yeah. a, one little note for you. I'll outline it, you know, one, two, three, four. This is what the author was saying. This was the background. This is the interpretation. Then once I have that, that's my basic outline. Then I start thinking, what is going to be my preaching point this week? And I usually will try to select one big theme that will carry it all the way through. And sometimes this is obvious because Paul does it for you, or the story is very clear where we're going. And sometimes it's not as clear. So you've got to decide, how are we going to apply this? Then I take that and I go back to the outline and I try to think, how is each of these... I try to make the the divisions of the passage be the divisions of how I preach. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always flow that way. Sometimes I need to break something up in half or combine two pa- uh, passages, but that's what I do. So once I have that, then I, I then I go down into detail and I will write a short paragraph under each of the points of what I'm going to do and what I'm going to say. I'm not making notes yet. This is what these are what my notes need to look like. So at that point, I've got the structure. Then I will go and I will start doing the commentaries. And I read a bunch of commentaries uh, because I like to get into the depths, into the background, and I like to make sure that I'm learning new things. So if I'm not learning new things, then sometimes I'll just kind of wrap it up. So if I've got eight books that I want to read, and after three or four, they're all kind of saying the same things, I might just hang it up. I'm not going to be be a freak about it. Uh, And then I've got that information. I used to write that down on a sheet of paper. But I have found that that was a little too rigid for me. And I've, I have discovered that if if it's a good thing, I'll usually remember it. Or at least I'll go, what was that? There was something on this one. Uh, and, and I will do that. This is when I will look at the Greek or the Hebrew. Sometimes I'll translate the passage. But if I'm doing a large section, I typically don't have time for that. I'll look at the Greek. I'll look at the Hebrew. And what I'm looking for there, I'm trying to see if there's anything worth drawing out. Because there's not always. <laughs> there's not always worth drawing something out of the of the original languages. Then once I've got all that done, I write down all of my notes in one marathon session. I cannot break it up and come back to it later. I've oh, tried. Huh. I, I, I will. It, sometimes it comes really fast and it comes in, in in like an hour and a half because I just know what I want to say. I've done all my homework 
and there's no point in being coy about it. I know what I want to say. Other times, man, it's torturous. And it takes me six, seven hours, eight hours to get the the notes down. And I end up with the same piece of, of information. That's usually when I'll take a break. Once I actually have the notes, I'll take a break. I'll go for a walk. I'll go to bed. And then the next day I will come back and I've added this recently. I cut stuff. I always cut stuff now mm. because it always ends up being too long. And there's always more stuff that needs to be in there. And I will just hack and slash. Just like I'll come in and say, all right, this these notes are three and a half pages. I want to get it down to three pages. So half a page has got to go from somewhere. And that's typically what I will do. And then uh, before I go up on stage, I'll be looking over it. I'll be praying over it. That's often when kind of the turns of phrase that I want to use will come to me. And so I'll write those in the margins sometimes of how I want to do this here. And um, sometimes I'll do an illustration pass well, I'll come back through and I say, I really need to add some color. I need to add some stories or something to this. And and then I get up and, and I preach and I don't have a manuscript. I don't know what you do. I usually have a fairly detailed outline with complete sentences that uh, allows me to, to preach from it. So that was actually yeah, the next question I was going to ask you is I've, I've, when I started teaching, I was a lot, my notes looked like a lot of bullets really where they were just sometimes even just a few words here and there. I have found the more I've taught that I have ended up getting towards more complete bullets and even mm -hmm. some complete sentences. The reason for that is a couple. Number one, I've found that if there's a tricky, and you taught me how to do this, if there's a tricky topic, or let's say there's a complicated thing I want to explain to people, or a maybe even something controversial that I feel the Lord is telling me to say, uh, that is, I will get that almost word for word in my notes. Yeah, if so, I've got a controversial thing to say, I'll write it out and I'll put it in quotes in my notes so that I know, read this, don't Right. Don't, don't, because I don't, I don't read it. <laughs> right. I don't want to give myself room to, to make a mistake or to misspeak or say something I didn't intend in the heat of the moment. Right. But then if there's something where, Hey, I'm not sure exactly the wording yet that the Lord wants me to use. I'll leave myself free sometimes to, I don't think improvise is the right word. Cause I've studied and read over these notes a lot, but I'll just in the moment, I'll exposit that the way that I, I feel. So I guess my notes have gotten a little heavier and you say you tend to come up because like three pages means different things for different people based on what your notes look yeah, like, right? Yeah, everybody's format is different. My dad, who is a preacher also, he has, I mean, he'll have between 12 and 25 note, pages of notes. Uh, he'll have a lot, but yeah. he uses wow. larger fonts. He's like double and triple spaces, everything. Hmm. Um, he likes to write out more what he wants to say than I do. Um, Sandy Adams in Stone Mountain, Georgia, writes out every word manuscript, of yeah. what he's going to say. He's got right. a manuscript. Most pastors don't do that. And I found a lot of preaching books that you read, they describe the creation of your manuscript. And they they kind of will will come about it like they like you're gonna be writing it all out. I've done that before, and I'll tell you, I really enjoy preaching from a manuscript, but I very rarely have time. I'm teaching mm -hmm. two full Bible studies. Like I'm not just doing preaching now, like I mean Bible studies. So my background, a lot a lot of these guys that say I spend so such and such time developing my manuscript. No shade on them, but they're not going as in-depth as the average Calvary pastor does or should. And so they, they're, not, they're not looking so much to do expository messages. So their background and the instruction is, is a small part of what they do. And a lot of it comes from their own, you know, I don't, I'm not meaning this as an insult. They're their, yeah. own, their own heart, their own head of what they want to say. And they spend a lot of time crafting the words. I don't do that. Uh, I've got, I'll usually have a, a complete sentence for each little bullet that I go through, that it reminds me of everything that I want to say. 
and I, I put mm. out as much as I need. And if I feel like one of the things that I'll cut is like these three bullet points all say the same thing. So what I will do is I will take one of these bullet points, expand it a little bit so that it reminds me of everything I wanted to say there. And so it kind of, you get the, the, the motion is what I, of my message. I'd say that's how most guys do it. Martin Lloyd Jones would have like a half page of notes. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. A half page of notes and they'd be like handwritten out of Hmm. what he wanted to say. And you know, he's so well-spoken that you can think, oh man, he must've written all this out. But no, he was just a well-spoken person and he knew his subject and he was prepared and he was prayed up. But as you listen to a lot of his studies, I found, okay, yeah, he does have some some familiar things and some familiar mm-hmm. ways of going about it um, because you can tell he's not he's not ready, writing it all out. I, I would think somebody like Tony Evans or Gail Irwin probably is much more prepared and much more, this is the exact turn of phrase that I'd like to use. And I'll say moment. too, because I just finished, you recommended that book on Preaching and Preachers, right? That's By Martin, Lloyd, Martin Jones. Lloyd Jones. Which is a fantastic book. You should read it if you're listening to the sound of my voice. Um, it's, it was very good. And one of the most encouraging things I got from that is he, Martin Lloyd Jones, who is con- widely considered to be one of the most amazing preachers who has ever lived. He said a lot through the book. He's like, look, you have to develop your own way of going about this. And he was really clear. He's like, you have to know your own temperament. You got to know your own strengths and weaknesses. You got to pray about this stuff because the way you teach is going to be different from how other people teach. You even just said, look, if you're, look, some guys are naturally well-spoken. Right. Like you just you off the cuff. You're the person that's always in the middle of the Mm -hmm. party, just cracking jokes, saying stuff. If you're that kind of guy, you might benefit from a little sparser set of notes because, you know, hey, in the moment, I'm going to be able to put these sentences together and the Holy Spirit's going to give me what I need to say. That's fantastic. If you're a guy who still called to teach, still able to break the passage down, but you're a little hesitant with just improvising some of those phrases and that's not your strong suit, you might really benefit from a manuscript that says, yeah, this is what I was thinking through and what I wanted to say. And you just got to know that about yourself and be be okay with, hey, that's going to look different from other guys. You don't ever feel like you want to be forced to copy what someone else is doing. No, but you I can mean, learn from Imitation can be helpful. Like start by yep. doing it somebody else's way. And then as time goes on, fi- figure out what works for you. So uh, as we wrap up this section here, preaching I, when or teaching is how Calvary Chapel tends to say it because uh, we we focus on that. But I I'll say this: when you're up on the pulpit, my primary priority, my first priority, is to teach the passage. I want someone to mm-hmm. walk away from this study in the Book of Daniel understanding this passage. My secondary goal is that I will give them the Lord's word for that day that they mm-hmm. can take home with them and and be instructed and um. I, I know that that's not everybody's order, but I feel like if they don't get what I'm after in terms of application today, or maybe I'm talking about marriage and they're not married, you know, like, right. okay, but they can still understand what this passage in marriage is all right. about. And if they come away knowing Ephesians 5 or Song of Solomon 3 or whatever, and like, I know this passage now. That's our primary goal. So when I have any doubts or concerns, I just fall back on verse by verse, expositing the passage and, um, you know, that's usually enough. And we're going to need a uh, whole s- yeah. season on just preaching. And oh, teaching, for sure. We? We, yeah, we'll do that for sure. I could, we could talk about this forever. This is all but, so but let's fun. go on to the last one here. And, and this one I don't think will take as long. But this is this is our fourth use of the scripture. And this is the devotional use of scripture. This is the use of the Bible to grow your own spiritual life. This is about mm. your personal life, getting to know Jesus, 
learning the voice of the Holy Spirit, finding where you've got to be growing, things you've got to be obeying. You're not looking to give this to anybody else. You're not even looking to accomplish a goal other than to grow closer to Jesus. These are those, the Lord is my shepherd moments where mm-hmm. you're you're learning who God is and you're learning what he has to say to you. And uh, you ought to be having daily devotions with the Lord. I mean, can we agree on that, Zach? I mean, every day this needs to happen. You're going to notice a difference if you don't. This is something actually, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this right now because my wife and I have just, we've just gotten our kids. I was talking to you old enough to where we can get back now as, as husband and wife to doing daily devotions together at the same time in the morning, mm. which if you don't have kids, you don't know why that's a significant <laughs> thing in our house. Cause it's hard when you have kids or you, and they're running around in the morning. And so we've had to, we're getting up early enough and they're quiet enough that we can do this together. And like we have been laughing for a month at how big a difference this has made yeah. in our oh, lives. For like sure. we were doing, like it wasn't that we weren't doing them. It's just sitting together as a couple and taking that time at the same time. And now you're talking about, well, look at this that I just read it. It's, it's, it's a really big deal. And I know, I know that can look, oh yeah, we know Christians are supposed to read the Bible. You remember when we used to, we used to have, uh, you do counseling with kids in the high school, right? And they come up to you and they say, oh, this is coming apart in my life and this is going on. And, and what we would always say, and they would start are to you roll their your eyes. Bible? Say, are you reading your Bible? <laughs> are you in fellowship? Are you praying? And they'd start laughing. Why? Because it's like, look, we know these things, but you, we constantly remind ourselves of them because it's the first thing to go when your walk with the Lord is slipping, right, are these yeah. things. That's why they're important to remember. Yeah, and then when we're talking about devotions, I mean, obviously, this is your own spiritual life and your own spiritual growth. It's very personal. Mm-hmm. It's you and Jesus. It's very spiritual. And those of you eggheads that have liked all of this <laughs> and now are starting to check out, you need this more than anybody. Yes. And yes, it's yes, a, yes. It is a shame that our scholars are some of the most spiritually thin people you'll meet in a lot of cases Ooh, where there's yeah. great meat and potatoes in their books, but there's just no life. And that's mm. I'm actually uh, reading through the book of Daniel, studying through the book of Daniel, and I have found a couple commentaries that I'm like, oh, this is what I'm talking about, man. This yeah. guy knows this stuff, knows his backgrounds and all that, but he also loves Jesus and it mm-hmm. comes off the page. So right. you you need this. Now, there's a lot of different things we can talk about with devotion. Um, we're specifically talking about the use of prayer in your personal devotions life. And I, I'll say it, your devotional time should be centered around the word of God. Hmm. That prayer should be scripture fed. That's a Daniel Henderson term. Mm. It's scripture word fed prayer that you're learning what to pray for and how to pray from the scriptures. You you don't just want this to be your morning, you know, <laughs> align yourself with the universe moment and, and, right. and borrow the world's way of doing morning meditations and just adding Jesus to it. We have, we have a book. You have to learn and know the book. So the first technique for when you're studying the Bible or for doing your devotions is read. Just <laughs> read the Bible. If you've not read the, if you're hearing this and you have not read the Bible all the way through, do it. Yeah. Well, I started the Bible in a year thing and it just didn't work for me. I don't care if you do it in a year. If it takes you two years, it's a long book. But read it. Yeah. Just open it up and read one chapter a day. You can do one chapter a day. But I, I like to give people small goals because they say, well, I can do more than one chapter a day. All right. Then it should be no problem for you to do one chapter right. a day for a month. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm still in Genesis. Okay. Then add another one. Do two chapters a day. And that's been my devotions for the last couple of years. I read through the Bible twice back to back because I just, I needed to get all of it in there. I needed mm-hmm. to have... Just do quantity. We'll do quality later. And I'm also doing other things too, but just quantity. I read the ESV again, and then I read the New Living Translation again. Man, it was great. 
And I just kind of feel like, wow, I, I know this better than I did before. So just read the thing. And, and Zach, do you do any kind of like study time, actual like study of the Bible in the mornings when you're doing your devotions? What I So yeah, what I do, like you're saying in addition to reading or... Yeah, like do you just read and pray or, or how do you do, you, do you do any study? Because I have done that in the past. I, ha- I haven't been doing it lately. What I'm trying to do right now is I have tried to focus on getting as much I'm doing like a quantity pass, like you're saying too. I'm, I'm trying to get as much read of the Bible in the time I have in the morning, which is usually 30 to 45 minutes. I just want to go for distance. I want to get a big chunk of scripture in in the morning. I'm not like glancing through, but I'm, I don't want to just get stuck in a couple passages. I want to see what's the big picture. And so like this morning, for example, I, I was the next thing was Song of Solomon. I read the entire book of Song of Solomon in one sitting. And what's cool about that sometimes. What's cool, yeah, what's cool for me is I'm starting to notice the bigger themes in books that I never noticed before because I'm getting it all together. I'm saying, hey, look, these last four chapters, he talked about the same thing. Or look how this whole narrative develops. It started over here, but now we're over here. And sometimes I would lose that. And I have found if you are discouraged by devotions or they feel boring to you, and I'll just let's be honest, that's we've all been there, right? That's part of it, though. Pushing through the boredom is part of it. It That's is. That's part of the growth. It's like going to the gym. You have to just do it. It is. And I think one of the things that helps it is you've got to be willing to to push through the boredom, but also to say, hey, am I doing this in a way that's not helpful for me? And change that. Like you said, hey, if, if the Bible in a year is not helpful for you, well, slow down. I've never done the Bible <laughs> in a year thing. I have no opposition to it whatsoever. But yeah. that's just... I've or or if uh, for some people, if the Bible in a year is keeping you from reading as much scripture as you should, then speed it up. You know, if you're the kind of person that, you know, I just sitting down in the morning with a cup of coffee to read the Bible doesn't sound great to me. Look, then go have a walk at the lake and put an audio Bible on. Like yeah. do, do oh, what I did will that for help. A while. Yeah. Do I, what I realized I didn't you. have, uh, I didn't know Ezekiel very well. So mm-hmm. this was before I had an iPhone. Uh, so what I did was I burned audio, the audio book for wow. Ezekiel onto, and ended up being four different CDs. In the olden days. Yeah. <laughs> so I had four, Ezekiel one, two, three, and four, I think it was four or five. And I just kept them in my car right. and I would just put them in, listen to them. And then when I finished, just put in disc two. And that was my, and I can still hear the, the yeah. son of man said the Lord to him. This very, very plain, not dramatized at all. And I was just trying to absorb it. But yeah. I, I think the study of the of the Bible is too, and there are Bible study books like that kind of guide you. Those are uh-huh. helpful, but I would encourage you guys too, just to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Just get into the scripture and do all the things that we said about the, in the study section, but maybe do it a, a smaller, leaner version of it. You know, do right. some cross referencing and try to study the words. But you're looking to apply this to yourself. You're looking to apply this to yourself. So right. I, I did this recently with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven of heaven. And then just, I mean, I would spend a long time writing it out, kind of underlining what's the emphasis, what does this word poor in spirit specifically mean here? What does it mean, the kingdom of heaven, what is that? And then just sit and like, man, what did Jesus mean by that? And just really sit and learn it for myself. What right. does that mean? You're not, th- and, and that's why when you say for yourself, the reason that's important is it's so easy, especially, especially if you teach even semi-regularly. Yeah, it's, it's always somebody else. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. It's it's what what does they what do they need to learn? What does my wife need to hear? Oh yeah, Derek needs to hear this. <laughs> exactly. It's like no, no, no. What what is God saying to me? Um, that's why I think it's good to build in a pause. Like if look. Maybe you're really good at reading because you're like an informational person. Look, you have to have a stop in your reading. Put your Bible down 
And now you're going to sit there with the Lord and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? What does that mean for me? What is what is the thing? And and look, like we said with teaching, you, the Lord may not be giving you a nugget for, for every day, although a lot of times that happens. It's usually something. You'd be surprised how often what you yeah. read in your morning devotions shows up in your everyday life. And you've got to be okay, right, with, and this is where... I'll just say this and you can correct me if you don't agree, but I think sometimes context is very important, but don't be that person. Don't be that Christian that has to always run around popping people's bubbles when they say, hey, you know, I was reading this and the Lord spoke to me through that and say, well, you know, well, you know, that was originally intended for the Israelites. Yeah, I know. Right. I know hotshot. I get it. I know what the context is. But the Lord, who is sovereign through his Holy Spirit, who is a comforter and an instructor and a teacher, used it to teach me something this morning. It doesn't mean that I'm, you know, yeah, I'm not I'm not trampling on what the original context is. And I'm not using my Bible like a fortune teller. I'm just listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, who is using his active living word to speak yeah, to the me. Word so don't God be afraid of that. Is living and right. active and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The book, the Bible reads you back. Right. And there you're going to read things where you go. All right. That's that's for me. Uh-huh. That is yeah. for me. And I think of when I was called to ministry, I was reading in Matthew 9, where Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Well, the the lesson of that passage is pray for laborers. Right. But I read that, and the, the message for me was, you are now going to be a laborer. It doesn't say that, but that's what the Spirit who inspired the right. Word was saying to me. Mm-hmm. And guys, there's all other things that we can add to this. Meditating on the Word of God, which is it comes from the the bovine word to ruminate on the word of God, which is chew on it. Think right. about it all day. Don't just sit there and, you know, try to feel the wind on your face and, and you know, like that's not <laughs> yeah. that's not meditation in a Christian sense. A Christian sense is you are filling your mind with the word of God and you're thinking it over all the day long. Right. That's what we're doing. And then prayer comes into that. And, and you got to sit there and listen to what God is trying to say to mm-hmm. you. But especially, I'm, I'm going to say it again, your devotional time needs to be centered around the word of God. Christians are people of the book. They need to know the book or the books. There's a lot of them in there. Right. And, uh, that's, that's how you use the scripture in your own personal life. And if you're not growing spiritually, that's what this is. We're disciples. Ultimately, we're disciples of Jesus. And if we're not taking the time to learn his words and those of the apostles and the prophets and to apply them to our own situation, then what are we doing, right? Jesus yeah. said, and we'll start closing it here with this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. You think that that's what it's all about. The book is what it's all about, man. Mm-hmm. But Jesus said, but these are they which testify of me, yet you do not come to me. He said, it's not just about the book. The book is to drive you to me. You are to find the God of the word in the word. And that's that's really, I think, a great place to wrap up this section on bibliology here. Uh, we've, we've looked at these five different five different sections on starting from what is the word do we do we are we sure we have the right one how do we study it and then today how do we how do we use it and i would encourage you to use it and i i mean i can command you on the authority of scripture you've got to be in the word and mm. if you're not in the word that's when things are going to start to to fall apart i know that from my own experience and from observing others so i mean zach any final words on this just broad subject of the bible as a whole before we wrap this up yeah if you're like if you're a beginner in all this stuff maybe this is maybe you're just discerning a call to ministry and you're like oh my goodness this is a lot like where do i start let me encourage you it's it's better to just start small and keep going don't feel, don't get overwhelmed by like, oh my gosh, like I've got to, I've got to understand all this today and I've got to get all these books. And what you got to do is you got to start where you're at 
and you've got to not quit. That's all you that's all you're responsible for, right? And so look, if if right now the thing you can do is okay, they talked about blue letter bible, so the next time I teach instead of just reading the bible and making my own notes, I need to also go to blue letter bible and look at that too. Hey, that's a great start. Do that. And then the next time you're asked to teach, do that and then say, okay, now I got to figure out this interlinear thing and I got to go get a commentary. Yeah. Like go, do what you can do and the Lord is going to give you the grace. He's going to, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you the next thing The okay, now we got to do this. Now we got to try this and you're going to add these layers. And over time, this is a distance game. You're going to be studying the same book for a long time. <laughs> We've got a long life to, to look at the word. So as you go, the Lord is going to add all these things to you but until you become an expert at this. And that's not yeah. a scary word. That's exactly what you're supposed that, to be. That's the thing. You should be constantly looking to add something else to your repertoire. Yeah. You know, my dad who taught the Bible, he's taught the Bible all the way through twice. Right. And then he uh, went back and finished Bible college and now he knows how to do Greek and Hebrew. So he's added that to his right. repertoire. Or maybe you've got to learn how to do better illustrations or learn some, some te- preaching methods. Or maybe you've got to start uh, being willing to venture out beyond your own tradition and your commentary reading or uh, whatever it may be. But uh, yeah, I, I like how you said that. Don't be afraid to start. So I'll give you a Zig Ziglar quote here. <laughs> he said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly until it can be learned to be done well. I love that quote. Yeah. If it's worth doing, it's okay to suck at it <laughs> until you can get good. Yep. So there's some millennial terms for yep, you. Yep, yep. Get good. Yeah, well, it's, it's hard. Yeah, well, well, it's yeah, it's hard. Yeah. But it's not that hard. You can do this. You can mm. get this. And we end this by venerating the word of God and saying that the Lord of the Bible is the one we worship. And I, I we withstand any attempts to minimize the scriptures because that's what the Lord saw fit to give us. So I, I would thank you guys for listening all the way through. If you've heard all five of these, we've got a, a new subject we're going to be addressing next time. But for our first series, it seemed right to talk about the foundation, to talk about the Bible itself. And I I think we got a wide range of subjects from the very lofty and intellectual down to the everyday and the super practical. So I think there is something in here for everybody. Thank you all for listening to the Ironworks podcast, and we'll see you next time. All right. We'll see you guys. Thanks so much.